those who are four to six years old, you can go to your class at this time. The rest of us will stay in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So the picture that I chose for the background is supposed to be a sunrise. What you saw here is the moon that is uh, going to be uh, barely visible as the sun is more and more dominant. This is the bottom part of the picture overseeing a lake. Very beautiful. What is it about sunrises that we love? Everybody loves sunrises. Sunrises produce hope. Why? Because the sunrise says it's a new day. And there are no stains on the day that is to come. And if yesterday was awful, or the last couple of days, weeks, months, or years were awful, a sunrise reminds us of the hope of something yet, um, yet to be stained or unstained. Hope leads to bold ministry. You see that in verse 12, and we'll read that verse again. 2 Corinthians 3.12 is the theme verse for today. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Several years ago, true story, there was a dictator who had near absolute power. It was thought that though that some of his leaders uh, were disloyal to him, so he came up with a test to test their loyalty. And he challenged them to bow to him. All of his servants did bow because what people, most people value above all else is their safety. We can see that with uh, recent Days And so some people's safety is uh, usually their most valuable commodity. Most of his servants bowed, but not all. The truth of God can and should control our lives. It should give us hope. A sure hope that makes God's followers very bold. There were three followers that day of God that would not bow to King Nebuchadnezzar. They were so bold to defy the clear command of the king. He was nearly, he had nearly conquered the world and had probably thousands of men, maybe some women there that day, and all of them bowed. Probably in a crowd, if everyone bows, there are three men stand out like a sore thumb that did not bow. And in Daniel 3... We are told of their story. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In not bowing and refusing a second chance, they tell us the reason for their resisting the command and willing to accept the consequences. I'll read you verse 16, and you have 17 up here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter, or we don't need a second chance. He was giving them a second chance. Now, if you will bow with a second chance, whenever you hear all these different types of instruments, I won't throw you into the fiery furnace. And they said, we don't have, we, we don't have anything to say. Uh, we don't need a second chance. And here's verse 17. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And here is what probably caused the king to intensify his rage, so he was probably hotter internally than the fiery furnace ever could be. He's so angry. And the, these three Hebrews say, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. There is the hope that caused these men in the face of certain death to be very bold. Verse 18 says, But if not, if he doesn't deliver us physically, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, or we will not worship the golden image that you have set up. What they were saying is, we won't recognize you, Nebuchadnezzar, as a god. We're not going to do it. 
Why? Because the very first of the great Ten Commandments says what? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. These men were probably not the only Hebrews there that day, but they're the only ones that made history. What caused their boldness was a hope. What caused them to be very bold in the face of a dictator who could end their life, or he thought he could? Very, very bold. And hope. What was their hope in? Their God will deliver them out of Nebuchadnezzar's hand. The reason for their boldness was hope in God's deliverance. Physical deliverance isn't always guaranteed. There are thousands, if not millions, of Christian martyrs down through church history that weren't delivered physically, like Stephen in Acts 7. But Stephen was delivered that day spiritually and taken to heaven to enjoy eternal life in the presence of his God. All Christians are guaranteed spiritual deliverance. So why are we not very bold? Faith and love, in, in, as we think about boldness, can fuel, fuel our boldness. If you think about what is the opposite of boldness, what comes to your mind? Well, you think of someone who's not bold, okay? So they might be fear or have some timidity. Another way of saying not bold, like Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. So shame can be the opposite of boldness, where someone is shamed so that they're not bold. In the context here of 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, the opposite is not uh, as clear as fear or timidity or shame. The opposite here is a lack of transparency. So they're not going to withhold something. That's what Paul's going to say here. I'm not going to withhold something that you need to know. And he's going to tell us in chapter 4 how he's going to come across in ministry and his methods of sharing the gospel and helping the Corinthians and other Christians to grow. So what is going to fuel Moses' bold, or, uh, boldness here for Paul is going to be different than Moses in, in verse 13. But all of us, like Paul, can and should be fueled by the hope of God. Why do we need this passage of Scripture? Do any of you struggle with boldness to speak when you should be speaking? <laughs> of course we do. Why? Because we're humans. But often we have a tank, so to speak. And what you put in that tank is the fuel that you need to run as God wants you, as we want, God wants us to operate as Christians. What fuels our boldness is often not hope, that we are part of God's glorious rescue plan. He is telling the Corinthians here about God's glorious rescue plan, this plan that is so much better than the Old Testament Glory that Moses got to see, and only Moses got to see, and Moses had to cover his face, and the Israelites didn't want to see Moses' face glowing, and so Moses put a, a veil over his face. And Paul is going to say here in this passage, and we're not going to get to verse 18 today, that'll be its own message, Lord willing, next week. But what Paul's going to say here is, we are not going to be like Moses, covering up our face so people are uncomfortable with seeing the glory. We're not going to wear a veil. The veil is going to come off, and we are going to boldly, very boldly share God's glorious rescue plan with all who will hear. It is glorious. And the glory that we saw, if you didn't uh, watch or weren't here for Pastor Ty's sermon from 3, 7 to 11, that was on uh, Mar uh, May 8th. You can pause this if you're watching and go back on our YouTube uh, to watch it. Uh, if you are here today and you didn't hear that message, go back uh, after uh, sometime this week and watch that because you'll, you'll, you'll appreciate uh, the context here uh, more if you listen to that and then this message. So we all struggle with fuel. Now, the older you get, the more I'm realizing this, you have to be careful what you eat and what you drink. The reason I wasn't preaching on... Easter this year 
because I probably wasn't careful with what I drank and it caused my body to produce a kidney stone that was awful. So I'm trying to change what I drink so hopefully I will avoid kidney stones. Uh, at least do what I can to avoid them. Um, but we have to, and you can eat junk food for a while. You can, you can treat a new car and put uh, lousy, uh, lousy gas or gas that may have water in it in that engine for a while because it's new and it will run okay. But if you want that car to last, and the older our cars get, and I have a car that's got 246,000 miles, it probably likes high-octane gas better than the cheap stuff. But we have low octane or low quality fuels for boldness, and we wonder why we're not bold. These could be our personality, where we trust in our personality and our personality is bold, but that's not going to fuel boldness that's very bold that Paul's going to address today. Other fuels might be guilt, like I just feel guilty, so I should be speaking, and I'm not, I'm not confident and Guilt is a fuel, but it's a low-octane, low-quality fuel for our speaking, for our ministry. Tradition, we just always do this. Or opinions, I have this opinion, this is my opinion, it's a strong opinion, and other people's opinion, this is what I should be doing because I want to please other people. Those are low-quality fuels. Personality, guilt, tradition, opinions, yours or others. But confidence in God's truth and God's plan will ignite our passion for spreading God's word as a clean burning, like a jet fuel, high octane. Or if you don't like the analogy of that for you healthy eaters, it would be like a superfood. Okay, something that will really fuel your body in a very healthy way. This is what Paul is talking about here, that we have such a hope. And he is going to explain this for us. What is hope is in. There's an Old Testament reference. We're going to compare. Uh, all right. We're going to compare what uh, you saw a little bit of in Pastor Ty's message uh, two weeks ago, uh, but we'll add verses uh, 3 and all the way to 17. The letter uh, of the law, the law itself kills. It's a, it's a ministry of death. It's a ministry of condemnation. It has glory, but it's fading. It's written on stone. It's veiled, and it leads to bondage, slavery. The Spirit gives life. It's a new covenant. It uh, brings righteousness. It's more glorious. It's lasting. It's permanent. It's written on hearts, not on stone. It is to be you're supposed to exercise unveiled. Our hearts and our minds, our lives should be unveiled to this glory. And this glory doesn't lead to bondage. It leads to freedom. Okay, so let's look at our text of verse 12 and then following. What hope fuels our bold ministry? Because he says here in the beginning, we are very bold. Verse 13, not like Moses. Okay, so Moses is different in that he didn't have the boldness that Paul is going to encourage us, encourage himself and the the Corinthians and us today as ministers of the gospel, ministers in the church. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. There's two ideas here back in Exodus 34 that the people were ashamed and felt fearful of looking at Moses' face, but here we have another dimension of why Moses put the veil on his face so the Israelites couldn't see. He didn't want them to see, it says here, of what was being brought to an end. And every time Moses was around people, he put the veil on. Every time he was with God, he took the veil off, probably so he'd get like a recharge of his face uh, so that he could reflect the glory of God. In Kids for Truth, this past, the past two Wednesday nights, we've been looking at us as God's people made in the image of God. This is to reflect, we are to reflect the glory of God. And as unsaved people, it's impossible for us to reflect the character of God as God intended. But when people come to Christ, the possibility of those once sinful, once dead in trespasses and sins, those lives, when they are transformed by the gospel of Christ, 
the ability for that life to reflect the glory of God begins. And it should be, as verse 18 tells us next week, should be a growing glory. The glory that we should be reflecting should be changing from glory to glory. It should be getting brighter, not diminishing, but getting brighter. Not only does it not end as it's permanent, it should be growing and growing. We'll see that, Lord willing, next week in verse 18. But for today, the theme is in verse 12, hope fuels bold ministry. The Old Testament reference, Moses' story, that uh, was mentioned last uh, time in verses 7 to 11 is also mentioned here in verse 13 from Exodus 34. Now verses 14 to 17 are commentary for us, divine commentary on uh, Paul's ministry. This sheet is determined to be on the ground. It's the second time it's been on the ground today. I won't touch it. All right. So verse 13 says, Not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. So Paul's ministry to the Corinthians, our ministry today, is not like the Old Testament. It is different. It is. It should have fueled by hope a very bold um, um, outcome or fuel. Fueled by uh, hope, we are to be very bold in our ministry. Verse 14, their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. So what is he talking about here? Well, John 12 and Jesus is speaking to crowds and possibly the Pharisees and explaining to his disciples why some people aren't getting it. They aren't getting the fact that he is the Messiah. And he says, quoting Isaiah, that their hearts are hardened and God is hardening their hearts. So, and there's a couple other passages that talk about the hardness of hearts. And the Old Testament, uh, first um, five books of the Bible talk about Israel's history and their hardened of their hearts. And uh, Romans, um, Romans talks about our hearts being hardened in Romans 1 and then in Romans 2. Um, but um, Psalm 95 talks about don't harden your hearts as in the day that the Israelites complained. Hebrews uh, talks about, Hebrews 4 talks about not hardening your heart. So there's a lot in Scripture that whenever you and I see God's glory or we're exposed to God's glory, an option of how we can respond to that glory is, eh, no big deal. Or like the Israelites at Mount Sinai, why they didn't get to see God's glory, they didn't want to see God's glory. They pushed Moses and said, Moses, you go talk to God. We are afraid of God. And they should have been. Why? Because they were sinful. They're rebellious. They were obstinate. And when confronted with God's truth, they said, outwardly will obey. But as Moses lingers on the mountain, what do they do in Exodus 32? They make a golden calf, which clearly disobeyed the second of the great commandments. And Moses comes down, breaks those commandments in Exodus 32. And in Exodus 33, Moses asks to see God's glory. Exodus 34, he does see God's glory at the second giving of the Ten Commandments. And Moses is, has some boldness but has to veil his face because the people don't want to see him. And here it says that uh, he also don't, doesn't want them to see that his glory of his face is fading. But the people of Israel in the Old Testament, their minds were hardened. If we don't accept God for who he is, if we are exposed to the glory of God, let's imagine that we are at this uh, beautiful picture where we're watching the moon go down and the sun come up at the same time, and we're watching this happen by this lake with the mountains in the background. What is our response to be? We can look at a, 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 a beautiful sunrise or a sunset or we got to go to the Grand Canyon, and we can go there and say, eh, millions and billions of years ago this was formed. Why that, why did I say that? Because this wasn't, the Grand Canyon is probably the handiwork of God. All of God's creation is his handiwork. 
All the, the, the stars and the moon and the galaxies declare the glory of God. And it says in, in uh, Psalm 19 that day unto day it utters forth speech and night unto night shows God's knowledge. And when we are in the middle of God's creation and we are surrounded by his glory and we give his glory to science, what? What are we doing? We're changing the glory of God to be something like just what we can imagine him to be. God is so much more glorious than we could ever imagine him to be. And the more powerful the telescopes and the more powerful the microscopes that we get, all we're going to do is see God's handiwork in micro and in macro. Huge. And we've got a telescope out there, what, a million miles away from the earth so that we can see more of God's glory. And as NASA sends us pictures, and we can see it, I think, starting in June or July, we can start seeing pictures better than the Hubble Space Telescope. You know what we're going to see? We're going to see the glory of God. And we who know God should interpret those images as, wow, God is so glorious. I can see him. Nature can show us God's glory, but this passage isn't about nature showing us God's glory. What is this passage telling us about? Where do we see God's glory most vividly? It's in his glorious rescue plan. It's in the ministry of the word. We saw earlier in, in chapter 2. Here in chapter 3, it's called the ministry of the Spirit or the ministry of righteousness. This is God's glorious plan. You know what we got to hear last Sunday afternoon? People responded to God's glory in a way that pleased God, and he rescued them. And they gave glory to God. And we as God's people were so thrilled. That God used us just a little bit to be part of his glorious rescue plan. We never get tired of hearing how God's people have been rescued from their sin. It never gets old. So glorious. It never gets old to be part of speaking about God's glory either. And here the boldness that we need is directly attached to, we hope, because God's glorious rescue plan is not a fading glory plan. Okay, if this is too small for you, I'm sorry. Let me know and I'll, I'll send you the notes. But we hope because God's glorious rescue plan is not a fading glory plan. We just read that in verse 13. In verse 14, we hope because God's glorious rescue plan depends on Christ alone. If it depends on us, it's not as, as glorious because we're human, we get tired, we get fueled, our fuel for boldness gets the wrong fuel, or our, our engines don't run right. But God's hope and God's truth can and does want to use these bodies that were redeemed to speak of his glory. Our, our minds can be hardened. Verse 14 continues, for to this day. So for Hundreds and hundreds of years, God has given the Israelites the law in around 1400 B.C. And for 1400 years, when people saw the Old Testament, the Israelites, of all people, should have known the Old Testament, expecting the Messiah to come and rescue them. And they, the Messiah came, and they were the ones who are chanting, crucify him. And then Paul and Silas and Peter and James and John, and they go out and the other apostles go out and tell people about God's glorious rescue plan. And Stephen, and what do the Jewish people do? They stoned Stephen. In one city, they stoned Paul, left him for dead. And they chased Paul around on his mission trips, trying to tell people not to follow Paul. Don't listen to what he's saying. And he is telling them about God's glorious rescue plan. And when he gets to Corinth... There are believers there in Corinth who turned away from all kinds of wickedness in 1 Corinthians 6, and they were washed, and they're cleansed, and they're justified. They're right with God, and they once served all kinds of um, immorality and idolatry that they are part of, like our day. And when people turn to the Lord, this veil that they can't quite see God's glory, that veil is taken away. Look at verse 14. The veil, the same veil, if our hearts, our minds are hardened, to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, 
They can't see God's glory for all the rules. All they do, as the Pharisees did, try to keep obeying the rules, obeying the rules, and get everybody else to obey the rules with you. But they don't realize the rules were to point people to the glory of God. And that you can't obey these rules. As Galatians 3 said, the law was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. The law was meant not to be obeyed. It was meant, if you could obey it, to, um, that you would earn eternal life. But no one can obey it. The people that thought they were obeying Jesus told them, even if you lust, same thing as committing adultery. Even if you have anger in your heart, same thing as murder. Oh, wow. And then he concludes the Sermon on the Mount with, unless you're perfect, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. Why did he say that to this Jewish audience? Because they thought they saw the glory of God. And here is Jesus in the person of the glory of God standing there, telling them what they needed, and they rejected him, and therefore rejected the glory of God. Why did they reject Jesus? Because they're, according to this passage, they can't quite see him. And when he's there, they didn't, their minds were hardened. See, you can harden your mind up to a point, as Romans 9 says, as uh, Pharaoh did for a while, and then God started hardening Pharaoh's heart. You can harden your heart to the glory of God over and over again until you reach a point, as Romans 1 says too, God starts giving you over. And when God starts giving you over to do all kinds of wickedness and the glory of God should be changing you from that wickedness and it doesn't change you, God's going to start hardening your heart. There's a lot of passive verbs, which means someone else is acting on the behalf of the people whose minds were hardened. They're not hardening their own minds now. God's hardening their minds because they're rejecting him. And it, the same veil, it says here in verse 14, remains unlifted. That, again, is a passive. They can't do it. They can't lift the veil themselves. Why not? Because this verse says, because only through Christ is it taken away. When we talk to people, we don't have to know everything that everybody believes in world religions because it's, some of it is very, very confusing. It doesn't make sense. What we need to discern with people in talking with them and building a relationship with them is what do they believe about who Jesus is, what he has done, and how are they responding? What is their responsibility? If they get Jesus wrong, then it's a cult. It's a false religion. If they get his salvation wrong, it's a cult. It's a false religion. Why? Because of these passages like this. Only through Christ is it taken away. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But in Christ, the veil is taken away. Why is it that so many people struggle to believe what the Bible says about Jesus Christ? Because their minds are hardened. They've hardened their own minds. When you point them to the clear teaching in the book of John that Jesus is God, and they say, eh, uh, no, I, I can't accept that. Okay, if you reject Jesus is God, you're rejecting God's glorious rescue plan. Because only through Christ is the veil to see the glory of God taken away. We hope, we are part of God's glorious rescue plan. Every time we gather as his people, every time you read the word, every time you are surrounded in nature by God's glory, that should make you be thankful that you're part of God's glorious rescue plan. And if you're part of it, then your hope that you're part of it should cause you to be very bold. We, this is what hope does for us. It fuels bold ministry. And it's only through Christ is this veil taken away. Now we can see God. Now we can understand that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Now we can see that no man comes to the Father but through Christ. Now we can see why Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished paid in full. Now we know why the resurrection of Christ is so important. 
because God accepted Christ's sacrifice. Christ did pay the full penalty of sin. Christ did destroy death as he rose again the third day. Christ did fulfill his own prophecies saying that he was going to rise the third day. He is in heaven interceding for us. He did send the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 to live inside of us. All of God's glorious rescue plan fuels our hope and fuels when we have hope that we are on the right team, that we are part of something much bigger than we are. We're part of showing people God's glory and encourage them to respond in humility, repentance, and trust. It depends on Christ alone. Only through Christ is this veil to see the glory of God taken away. Verse 15, yes, he's going to emphasize this again. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, so this would be the Old Testament, specifically the first five books of the Old Testament, the law of God, a veil lies over their hearts. So their hearts and their minds are involved here. When we see God, we won't glorify him as God. Our mind is hardened by God because we've hardened it ourselves. And he says, okay, this is what you want. You don't want me. You want your own way. I'll start giving you your own way. And your mind starts getting a little harder toward God. Not only does your mind, is your mind affected by your refusal to look at God's glory in the person of Jesus, your heart is also hardened as well. Uh, they can't see. There are so many people that are so, we would say, so close to seeing Jesus for who he is and that they refuse something about who Jesus is. And we say, you've got to accept Jesus as he appears in the Bible. The Jewish people around Jesus had to, had to accept his statement in John 10 that I and my Father are one. We are the same. And the Jewish people said, you are blaspheming. Picked up stones, ready to hit him. He wasn't blaspheming. He was telling them the truth. He was telling them, he was showing them the glory, the glory of God. In the face of Jesus, instead of submitting in submission and thanking him for coming, they wanted to stone him. When they couldn't stone him, they could crucify him. But it was all part of God's glorious rescue plan. So a veil lies over their hearts. Their minds are hardened. We hope. Because God's glorious rescue plan depends on God enabling understanding. Have you ever talked to someone and you cannot convince them? that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You cannot convince them that they have to return from their sin and trust Christ alone. They say it's too easy. They give you all kinds of other excuses, and you say, I just can't convince you. I can't get in your mind and soften that mind. I can't get in your heart and convince you that Jesus is who you need. We hope, because God's glorious rescue plan Look at the end of verse um, 15. When Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Depends on God enabling them to understand. It involves their heart, their will. And all this is passive. So God is having to do this. Whenever people turn to Christ, God acts on our behalf. He will act on their behalf too. Verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. It doesn't say they remove the veil. Who removes the veil? Let's go back to the story of the cross. Who removed the veil of the temple? Was it man-made tearing? It wasn't from the bottom to the top. It was from the top to the bottom. Why? Because God's showing all the Jewish people, you now have access to me. And it is not into the Holy of Holies. It's into the presence, the very presence, the throne of grace, Hebrews 4 says. You have access. I have access. How do we have access to the glory, glorious throne of grace? It's through Christ. 
Who removes the veil for us? It says here, it is removed. And we're left with asking the question, who's removing this veil? Because it's not done by the person who wants God or wants understanding. No, this is someone who needs the veil removed for them. So it says, when one turns to the Lord. So here's our responsibility. Here's only human responsibility here. Turn to the Lord. So people are curious. They're confused about who Jesus is. They want something about Christianity. They like something about Christianity. What we tell everyone from every tribe and tongue and nation, from every personality type, from every malady, from every sin category, from everybody on the face of the planet, here's what we tell them. Turn to the Lord. Come to Jesus. And him alone. You say that's too simple. That's what the text says. When someone turns to the Lord, imagine Nebuchadnezzar, go back to, in our minds, to not Daniel 3, the fiery furnace, but Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's an animal for seven years. You know when that thinking he is an animal comes to an end? When he turns his eyes to heaven. He turns to the Lord. I think he's a believer. I think we'll see him in heaven. Any one in any addiction, in any gross sin that we are talking to, that you might be stuck in, when we turn to the Lord, we can see the glory of God. And when you and I see the glory of God, verse 18, it's a glorious verse. We'll get to it next week. It deserves its own message. But this fuels our hope. We are part of, in our ministry, and this is, whole book is about ministry. You see the word ministry over and over again. You'll see it in, in chapter 4 too. We are ministers of God's glorious rescue plan, telling people to come to the Lord. You can't figure this out. I have talked to people recently, and they say, I cannot understand God's rescue plan. I said, you don't have to figure it out intellectually. You have to just come to him. He's figured it out. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to do everything just right. Say all the right words. No, you come to him. You trust him. And he'll give you eternal life. And this is our message. We're part of a glorious rescue plan. And it depends on God enabling understanding. God softening the mind. God opening the the heart and taking away the veil. And when Christ, when people turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. In verse 16, we hope because God's glorious rescue plan depends on the sinner turning to God the Spirit. You say, God the Spirit? I thought it was God the Son who is called the Lord. Right, I thought that too until we have verse 17. And verse 17 is pretty clear. The Holy Spirit of God does the work behind the scenes for us. Oh, he is working so much. And your homework this week is going to be to study 1st and 2nd Corinthians and look for all of the references of the Holy Spirit and all that he does for Christians. It is fascinating. And I'll encourage you to join me this week in doing this study. But we hope because God's glorious rescue plan depends on the sinner turning to God the Spirit. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Who removes the veil? God, the Holy Spirit, removes the veil. How do we know that? Because we have verse 17. Now let's go to verse 17. And we'll start at verse 17 and add verse 18 next week. Verse 17 tells us, Now the Lord, or this Lord, is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, or where the Spirit of the Lord is working, is being submitted to, and He is the one who is now softening the mind that was hardened. He is the one who is removing the veil over our heart that could not see the glory of the Lord, and it's confusing to us. He's the one who removes the veil, and when the veil is removed and we can see the glory, 
and we respond to this glory, that is where there is freedom. And only then is there true freedom. Freedom in Christ, yes, but freedom that the Holy Spirit gives us. The Holy Spirit is so active in our lives before salvation and after salvation. We already know in the book of Galatians chapter 5 that we are to walk in the Spirit. And that chapter, chapter 5, starts with the freedom that we have in Christ. Stand fast in the freedom that we have in Christ. And love other people because we're set free from our flesh, from our sin, drugged down, and life is all about us. Oh no, life is all about Christ. Life is all about the Holy Spirit using these once dead bodies and Christ has made us alive and now he can use us. And this passage talks about him using us in ministry. Bold ministry, not just bold ministry, very bold ministry. And what's fueling that very bold ministry? Hope. Hope is so powerful. In verse 18, we'll look at next week, but we hope because God's glorious rescue plan includes all Christians. And if you don't believe me, look at the beginning of verse 18. And we all. It's not just Paul, not just Paul Silas, not just Paul Barnabas, Paul and his co-workers, not just the apostles years ago. No, it says we all. Corinthians, apostles, Believers at Grace Bible Church in the 21st century. And we'll talk about this verse next week and what it means and how it fits in the context of bold ministry. So three things here in closing for application for us. Next week's message, it's going to be a lot of application. So if you don't like your toes getting stepped on, sorry. They're going to get stepped on. All right. If we were to evaluate your life right now and the people that know you best, would they say this Christian is a bold minister? Would that be even in their top 10 descriptions of you? Or would they say this person lacks boldness? See, if boldness is fueled by a personality, we can say, I don't have the personality to be bold. And we, we give ourselves a pass, where this passage I don't think gives us a pass. If your opinion, or back to the fuels, uh, the inadequate fuels for boldness, guilt, I don't really feel guilty. I just tell myself, eh, I don't, I'm not. that's someone else's job. And we get ourselves out of ministry and no one would consider us bold or no one would say very bold. If you are not and I am not a bold minister of God's glorious rescue plan, then I probably don't have the right fuel. If your car doesn't run, the very first thing you do is check the fuel. You can't get the lawnmower started, the very first thing you do, check the fuel. You got to have fuel. And what is fuel here? It says in verse 12, go back there, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. I'm not making this up. This is exactly what Paul wants us to see. Hope fuels bold, very bold ministry. And if we're not bold, then we've got to ask ourselves, I'm going to need more fuel. So we go back and say, wow. Okay, imagine if you got saved as an adult, you can put yourself here, that once my heart was hard, once my mind could not understand, and I just, I was blaming God, I was angry at God, I was confused, whatever you were feeling, and, and all of God's truth that you saw in God's word did not make sense until you came to Christ, and when you came to Christ, oh, breath of fresh air. Okay, we sometimes get over our salvation if it happened decades ago. And the hope that you and I had that we have eternal life fueled bold ministry right after you and I trusted Christ. The problem is we didn't keep going to the fueling station. We didn't keep going back to the word and keep going back before our, our God and prayer and say, God, I do not have the boldness. I've lost hope. 
that were on the winning team. You can watch the news and you can get so discouraged. You can be on social media and it drains you spiritually. Or you can spend your time and say, you know what, I'm going to limit how much fuel I put in my heart and mind online, on the news, newspaper, social media feeds, all that is just draining and distracting you. And say, I am going to get in the word and I'm going to look at the glory of God. Oh, man. And when you and I see the glory of God, you'll be bold. I'll be bold. The problem is not with the hope. It's not with the truth. It's there. And we've experienced it as Christians. And now we are ministers of God's glorious rescue plan. All right, two challenges this week to help you. If you're not a bold minister, you need more fuel. Are you willing to meditate on God's removing the veil over your heart so that you can see him this week. See, general revelation is good, but looking at the trees and the stars and the galaxies don't tell me about Jesus. They don't tell me that I'm dead in trespasses and sins. They don't tell me very specific things that the word of God does show me. And so I can see God's glory generally, but very specifically, I see God's glory in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I expose myself to that glory as if you want to get a sunburn. You go out today and you sit in a chair and you just let let yourself get baked. And you'll come back next week and you may look a lot different. Someone says, eh, spend some time in the sun. When you and I want to be changed, we spend time in the presence of the Son of God. And His glory changes us. We won't be the same. But we have to be willing to meditate on God's removing the veil over our heart. We have to expose our hearts and our minds to what he has done for us in salvation. Here's what helps me. When I think of how the percentage of people that the broad way leads to death and the narrow way leads to life. And I'm on this narrow way. I'm like, I'm not here because I'm better than anybody. And our sufficiency, as he said earlier in chapter 2, we're not sufficient for these things. We're not sufficient to share the word. And Christ made himself available to me. He softened my heart and my mind. And I'm part of God's rescue plan. If I'm part of the 10 or probably 5, 10% of people on earth that are going to heaven... Meditating on that thought alone should give you hope. That should fuel bold ministry because there are people around you that God wants to use you and me to talk to. He's chosen them before the foundation of the world. He's put them next door to us, across the street from us, over the cubicle from us. Just happen to cross paths or happen to be friends from of old years ago and we're reconnected and we're trusting God to use us in his glorious rescue plan to rescue others what do you think will result from you and I meditating on his salvation of our souls you know what will result hope and very bold ministry finally are you willing to search with me this week First and Second Corinthians. We could look at the whole New Testament, but you can Google it. I did, and there's not um, not hundreds, okay? So less than twenty, I believe, uh, references you'll see in First and Second Corinthians, just up to chapter three, and see all that the Holy Spirit does for us. If you just want to write them down, here's the reference. Here's what I learned about what the Holy Spirit did for me. You can Google it. You have a search on your phone or on a computer, um, online Bible, or some other uh, device you can find. Uh, look for the references. You could just scan First and Second Corinthians up to chapter 3 and just jot down all that the Holy Spirit does for believers. Why do we do this? Because we want to keep our heart soft. We want to ke- realize that all that the Holy Spirit does for us is powerful. It's glorious. It is putting in our hearts and our minds hope. And hope, whenever we think about it, that God is working. God is always working. 
We can see him working in lives around us, yes, but we can see him because he promised to use his spirit to work this way and this way and this way and this way. And as we realize that we're not in this battle and speaking alone, and we're not expected to be very bold without God's help, that the Holy Spirit is always working, and we're just part of it. He just wants to use our voices. And uh, being willing to meditate, being willing to search will help us to encourage us to have hope which will lead to very bold ministry. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you and we realize that we do not have boldness apart from you. The Holy Spirit must work in us, must work through us. We know that he wrote the Bible for us using holy men and exactly what you wanted communicated to us sinful humans in the 21st century is what is written here for our learning i pray that we would learn this morning how to increase our hope with your truth help us to be saturated this week with the word and not with sports and not with news and not with other people's lives and everything that we fill our minds with and we fill our calendar with I pray that we would fill our schedule this week with truth, truth from your word, truth that we're part of your glorious rescue plan. Help us to be willing to meditate on this glorious rescue plan day and night, and that you would increase our hope. As you increase our hope, help us to be very bold. And as we are very bold in ministry, help us to give you all the glory for it. It's not us. We are not sufficient for this. You make us sufficient. Use these insufficient bodies, weak as we are. Empower us with your spirit and the inner man. Change us by your glory. From once ashamed, now unashamed of the gospel. From once timid or fearful to bold. And when it's our time to come, stand before a dictator and bow that we will say our God will deliver us, in whose name we pray, whose son we hope. Amen.